0: Luke chapter 23 Hope you have your Bibles I'm going to be using a reasonable amount of scripture this morning Daniel Takina is going to be helping me out and putting a lot of them on the the wall not this first passage though so we can all kick off in the book together and then as we go along he'll put the scriptures on the wall more important that you're able to stay in, in touch with what the lord wants to say than necessarily flipping and flopping through the word of god Amen. You get a bible like mine that has thumb indexes that can help one of my previous pastors said it was a cheats bible because it has thumb index but i'm okay with that i don't think he wanted me to change it. at least i hope he did if he did i misunderstood bless the lord luke chapter 23 you're going to read a portion here and when they had come to the place which is called calvary there they crucified him and the malefactors one on the right hand and the other on the left and then said jesus father forgive them for they know not what they do and they parted his raiment and cast lots the people stood beholding and the rulers also with them derided him saying he saved others let him save himself if he be the christ the chosen of god the soldiers also mocked him coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying if thou be the king of the jews save thyself and a superscription also was written over him in the letters of greek and latin and hebrew which said this is the king of the jews and one of the malefactors which was which were hanged railed on him saying if thou be the christ save thyself and us But the other answering rebuked him, saying, "'Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation?' And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, "'Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom.' And Jesus said unto him, "'Verily or truly I say unto thee, "'Today shalt thou be with me in paradise.'" And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood far off, off, beholding these things. Amen. The day that Jesus was crucified, there were many different kinds of people in the crowd. There were many different opinions about him, many different points of view. The religious rulers we know were there. They were the ones that had whipped the mob into a frenzy so that in their intensity they chose the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus, demanding his crucifixion. The Roman soldiers were there. They were hardened to crucifying people. It was something that was not uncommon to them, and yet even they were impacted by the behavior of the Lord. And the ladies that ministered to him throughout his ministry, together with his mother Mary, who although she knew her son was born for a divine purpose, no doubt still experienced unimaginable heartache at his suffering. The disciples, or at least those that hadn't fled, were watching their leader, their rabbi, their master passing from this life. A thief on his left hand and another on his right. One railing on the Lord, the other seeking redemption and when it was all said and done and people finally went to their homes each of them would have had their own unique reflections on what they'd seen that day but this morning with the help of the lord i want us to consider a different point of view another perspective if i can i want us to try to comprehend what jesus saw when he looked at humanity from the top of golgotha's hill So I want to preach, possibly teach this morning from this title, The View from the Cross. Let's pray. Father, this morning, Lord, we're in your presence, we're in your house, we're your people. Lord, we open your word, we preach under your anointing, Lord, that your power might be released in this place. And Lord, this morning, some of these things we will cover, we've heard before, But, Lord, I'm asking you, Lord, for revelation this morning, Lord God. I'm asking you, Lord, for understanding, Lord, that would be more than simply mental knowledge, but, Lord, that it would settle into our hearts and transform us. Lord, your word is powerful. It is able to transform. It desires to transform. And so, Lord, we commit this time into your hands, Lord, that we would put aside distraction, Lord, that we would put aside discouragement and the weight of life and we would allow your word to minister to us today, Lord, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Bless the Lord. We know as readers of the New Testament that it was the Lord's love for us, it was the, that was the motivating factor that held him on the cross, that caused him to be willing to surrender his life and to yield his life to that horrendously unfair crucifixion mankind or you and i to make it more personal his image creature was broken and corrupted and spiraling downwards into a devil's hell we're not able to save ourselves not able to redeem ourselves not able to restore ourselves and so because of his love for us he came because god did so love the world he manifest himself in a fashion that had never been done before to pay for our sins and when we observe his actions when you read the concluding chapters of the four gospels each contributes to a picture each tells a story about the lord that even though he was in agony even though physically he was in agony and also bearing the guilt and shame for the sin of all mankind he was in another kind of agony or despair, if you like, that we are not able to comprehend, even then, his priority was love in action. In John's gospel, we read that while he hung there, he organized the care for his widowed mother from the cross. Even as the soldiers drove the nails into his hands and feet, he requested forgiveness for them. The thief that cried out to him received a promise of paradise that would be fulfilled later that day. And a Roman centurion moved by the supernatural signs and the difference about how this man conducted himself declared that he was the son of God. When you think about a pagan, an idol-worshipping Roman centurion stating that this man that he just helped or at least authorized to crucify, declaring that he was the son of God, there was something about Jesus that was different from every other crucifixion that he'd been involved in. And there, there are two verses I want to look at, and Daniel's going to help us out here, to give us a little bit of understanding, a glimpse into the view from the cross, into what Jesus was looking at, in not necessarily just there, but beyond what was happening there. In Isaiah 53 and verse 10, speaking prophetically about the crucifixion, it said, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's important we understand when it says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him, God is not some kind of twisted sadist that enjoyed pain or inflicting pain. But the pleasure, that which is written about prophetically, is the purpose. It's the goal. It's what was achieved through Calvary that would bring pleasure to God. It was the fact that that which was broken and unredeemable would become redeemable, would become able to be saved, that you and I would be able to have an opportunity to have our sins washed away, to have new life given to us. That was the pleasure in the cross. Observed in isolation, there was nothing pleasing or pleasurable about it. But there was a perspective that was beyond the natural. We see a similar tone in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, where the writer says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. When it says looking unto him, it's telling us, don't be distracted. Don't become focused on other stuff. Don't allow the way you live your life to be determined by secondary priorities, but look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him in the natural looking out from that cross that day there wasn't a lot of joy to be seen there was a multitude that had cried for his execution those that had walked with him many of them had fled there was grief there was sorrow there was anguish there was pain and yet the writer of hebrews said that there was joy that was set before him amen that's the perspective of the cross Not the suffering of the immediate in the present, but the reason that it was taking place. And in his agony, love was still reaching out for other people. Not seeking relief from the pain or mercy for himself, but others. And because he was God manifest in the flesh, that love is still able to reach for us today. Every broken human being in this world today is on his mind just as much as those that stood around the cross some 2,000 years ago. That's why the Apostle Paul could write to Titus and say this. He said, for the grace of God in Titus 2 and 11 has appeared, the grace of God, sorry, that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. That word appeared means it's been revealed. It's shined upon. It's become visible through his sacrifice. Grace has appeared to all men. It has become available to all men. Amen. And this is the area that I'm particularly going to be focusing on this morning. See, most of us, in one form or another, we believe in the grace of God, at least to a certain point. We know that without His grace, we can't be saved. Many of us from Sunday school and different Bible studies and youth can quote Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, where it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works or of of man's actions, lest any man should boast, or in any way that we should take credit for it. We can quote that verse, to many of us, and it's a true statement. And this verse, and a lot of others like it in the New Testament, have tragically been misunderstood to mean that if we just believe in God, mentally, some sort of mental acknowledgement, that no response from us is required that we just believe and possibly raise our hand in a service somewhere and we're saved just like that i have no problem with that being the beginning with that being a start of the process but that does not line up with what the word of god says as apostolics this morning we understand that genuine saving faith that comes to us with grace takes a hold of the grace of god and it requires obedience to the gospel. Amen. Not that in any way we save ourselves or that we can achieve salvation, but if the word of God shows us that we must be born again of water and spirit, if it shows us clearly that this means repenting of our sins, being baptized in Jesus' name, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, speaking in other tongues, which is what the book says, then by faith we obey the word of God. Genuine saving faith is demonstrated in obedience. Obedience is not saying, well, I'm going to save my own soul. You cannot do that. But genuine saving faith responds to the gospel and obeys the gospel. And we read even in the, in the gospels of even a priest, it says that those of the priesthood, some of them were obedient to the gospel. Obedience means something is said, something is done that's basically what obedience is amen and his word brings us to repentance the gospel message brings us to repentance faith in his word demonstrated through obedience to baptism washes away our sins faith to the promise faith to receive sorry the promise of the holy ghost invites an outpouring of the spirit of god and all of this is only possible through the grace of god and our faith responds to grace in obedience. And we are born again. You've heard me say it before, but I like the analogy of God's grace, his saving grace reaching down to us and our faith reaching up and taking a hold of that grace. And something happens when we have faith. Something happens when we put our faith in what the word of God says. Amen. Bless the Lord. In recent weeks, in several services, I think mainly on Wednesday nights, I've been ministering and teaching a little here and there on the love that God has for you and seeing yourself the way that he wants you to see yourself. And uh, I'm going to fold a little bit of that into this morning, but I want to make this statement to begin with that if you've been born again, you've been born again, washed in his blood, baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, you are his child. He is your father. Yes, he is our God. Yes, He is the King of Kings. Yes, He is the Creator of heaven and earth. But we enter into a relationship. But we are His children. And He cares for us as His children. He loves you. Say it again. He loves you. You are valuable. You are precious in His sight. You are accepted. Acceptance is a massive issue for humanity. We all want to be accepted. We all want to feel like we fit somewhere. We belong somewhere. That's why there's so many different things going on in the world. That's why you see people will do something really radical or something really different because they say, oh, I want to be unique. But then everybody starts to imitate them. You get all these people that are unique together. They're looking to be accepted. They're looking to belong somewhere. We are accepted by the Lord. I'm going to say that again a few times because some of you don't get that yet. We are accepted as his children. Amen. We belong to him. Now, there are a wide variety of factors that would take me more time than I have today. A wide variety of factors and experiences in our lives that contribute to us struggling to believe and accept the love of God for us. A lot of things can come into that. can be dysfunctional families. can be hurts. can be abuses. can be a lot of different things that have affected the way that we think naturally. So we struggle to learn to rethink spiritually. We struggle to accept the love and the grace of God. But there is one common denominator that can affect Christians from every background. Whether you came from the best family on the planet or you never had a family or anywhere in between... There's one common denominator that can affect us and hinder us from being feeling and being confident in our acceptance with the Lord. And that is a misunderstanding of the grace of God, a misunderstanding of God's grace. When we attend Bible school or even in Bible studies, we're often given a definition of grace that sounds something like this. Grace is the unmerited or undeserved favor of God towards men. Anybody heard that before? Okay. Grace is the unmerited or undeserved favor of God towards men. To simplify that statement a little further, it's basically saying that we receive the goodness of God even though we can't earn it, don't deserve it, and could never afford it. Now, all of that is true. All of that is. Anybody here good enough for God? Anybody here didn't need somebody to die in their place? So, all of that is accurate but as an understanding of grace that statement is incomplete because if our view of grace stops at that point i want you to listen to me this morning i believe god wants to change the way some people think today if our understanding of grace stops at that point we can almost get to feeling like we've we've slipped in while no one was looking you know we, we slipped in the church i'm in i don't know how that happened but i got in well, no one was looking. We, we feel like we don't deserve to be here. And we can even go as far. This, this, is, this is where a lot of people, you might laugh a little at this, but sometimes we can even go as far as to almost feel guilty for being saved. I mean, we think that's crazy, but it's not as crazy as it sounds. This can lead to a life of fear, of being afraid that if we don't stay good enough, or if we don't do all the right things, that we could easily be thrown out of the kingdom. Kind of like we're on probation. That somehow God has begrudgingly allowed you to come into his house, but you better not break anything. That's how we can get to feeling. And we can feel as though grace somehow got us through the door, but now we better stay on our toes and not mess it up. It is true it is very true that we should live a righteous life. That's biblical. It is also very true that salvation can be lost. There is a belief that gets taught around certain places that once you've been saved, you—you you know, nobody can touch you, doesn't matter what you do. I wish it was true. I'll be honest. I wish it was. If I could find a way to twist the scripture and make it work, I'd like that idea and I'd get saved, go do what I want. But unfortunately, it doesn't back up with the word of God. So it is true that salvation can be lost. But it is not true that the grace of God just got you through the door and that now you're on your own and you better not mess up or that you're hanging by a thread. That is not true. Daniel, if I could have that next verse up there, please. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, To the praise of the glory of His grace. Wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Amen. What did I to say before? You are accepted. By the grace of God, we are accepted in the beloved. To break that verse down and decomplicate the King James English, you are special to him. You are the object of his love. You are the object of the love of God. Amen. Confidence in a love-based relationship will change your behavior. Confidence in a love-based relationship will change your behavior, whether it's within a marriage or within a family. If you believe that you are loved, if you trust in that love, it will change how you live. You'll do what you do and live how you live, not to cause God to love you, but because God loves you, they are two very different things. The 23 or so years that I lived in my parents' house, every Monday through Friday, I watched my dad get up and go to work. Walk out that front door every morning at about seven thirty, eight 8 o'clock in the morning. Come home usually about 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. Every day, like clockwork. Every single day. He did it because of his love for his family. Because, now... Allow me the stereotype. I know nowadays a lot of husbands and wives work. But biblically, it is a man's responsibility to provide for his family. And that's why he did what he did. But he did so because he recognized that he loved his family and his family loved him. He didn't come home every night and go, oh, they're still here. Thank goodness for that. I must have worked hard enough today. He came home expecting us to be there. Why? Because he loved us and we loved him he didn't go to work every day thinking well if i put in enough hours and make enough money when i get home my wife and kids will still be there they won't be weighing it up and thinking about leaving he never as far as i'm aware he never thought that i didn't verify that just to just to put in that disclaimer but you see a love-based relationship changes the way you behave within that relationship not always to what is observable but to what is going on within and the, the why we do the things we do. 1 John 4 and 18, we've referenced this a bit lately. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love, or love that is complete, or has completed its purpose, is understood, casts out fear. Why? Because fear has torment. And he that feareth is not made perfect in love. Who's this written to? The church. Now, if this wasn't a problem for the church, why did John write it? It wasn't an assignment. He had to get to so many words. You know, standard epistle had to be so many number of words before he could mail it. No, he wrote this to the church under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. I want to read that same verse. This isn't on the screen, Daniel, so don't fear. Cast that out. Uh, In the Amplified version, it says this. This Amplified is a paraphrase. It says, There is no fear in love or dread does not exist but perfect or complete and full-grown love drives out fear because fear involves the expectation of divine punishment so the one who is afraid of god's judgment is not perfected in love has not grown into a sufficient understanding of god's love when we live in fear that if we fall short that if we're in God's house and we do break something that he's going to punish us that's not complete love that's not how God wants us to live he wants us to have confidence and let his love be completed in us and grace has made it possible for us to become a part of the family of God which is a love relationship one of the two greatest commandments love him with everything Love your neighbor as yourself. If that's not a love relationship, I don't know what is. Amen. Grace has made it possible for us to become a part of the family, but grace makes it possible in an ongoing sense to continue to stay in the family. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, being justified by faith. Or in other words, therefore, by faith in him, he sees us as if we've never sinned what justification is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God grace didn't just bring us in we stand in it we stand in it it's where we exist in the present in our relationship with God we stand in grace grace by faith. Sometimes we think we were saved by grace, and we were, but we think that was sort of some sort of past thing. We stand in the grace of God. We stand in confidence and assurance in the grace of God. Amen. Now, I know, I know that Jesus isn't still on the cross, contrary to a lot of the things we see in some more orthodox situations. But the, rev- the view, if you like, that the Redeemer has of you and I i may have left this one out daniel i'm not sure second corinthians 5 and 21 says for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin why that we might be made the righteousness of god in him now that's hard for our minds to comprehend in the natural because we know that we are broken we know that we've sinned, we know that we have weaknesses, but because he took my sin, when he looks at me, and when he looks at you, he sees his righteousness. I'll say that again, because that's really hard to wrap your brain around, or it is for mine anyway. When he looks at us, because of the exchange, because he said, I'll die, you live, I'll pay, You go free. When he looks at us, he sees his righteousness. Now, the first thing we say in the natural when we hear that is, but, but what about? But what when I do this? But when I'm not good enough? But when I say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, make a mistake? The grace of God, wherein we stand, I'm not saying that sin doesn't matter. If we know we've sinned, we need to make it right with God. But in the midst of our brokenness somehow supernaturally he is able to see us through the blood of the cross through his mercy and his grace and see us as righteous anybody struggle understanding that that's some honest people in the building that's good that's hard because we know we know that we are not righteous naturally but he sees us through grace as righteous. And we've got to allow him to change our understanding. It doesn't mean we become slack and just live like the devil, but to have an assurance and a confidence in that love relationship that says I'm standing in his grace. And with all of my weaknesses and all of my shortcomings and all of my flaws, he sees me as his righteousness. Bless the Lord. And right now, some of you are struggling with that, like I've given you the most complicated mathematical problem you ever heard, which for some of us would be easier ones than others. For me, it'd be pretty simple. I'm not a mathematician. see, Abraham is described in the book of Romans as having walked with God by faith. And because of that, the King James Version uses the word that it was imputed, I-M-P-U-T-E-D, it was imputed unto him for righteousness. What that means was because he trusted in God, he obeyed God. Yes, he did. He obeyed the Lord. But because he trusted in God, it was credited, if you like, that word imputed, his account showed righteousness. And as the children of Abraham by faith, when we obey what God says, just like Abraham did by faith, he takes our sin, because that's what was in our account. He takes that and says, put that on my tab. And in its place, he imputes or he credits righteousness to us. Because we're awesome? No, because of his grace. Because for by grace are you saved. And we stand, we get saved by grace, we stand in grace. We are kept by the power of his grace. Amen. But grace goes a little further than bringing us in. And keeping us. Romans chapter five and twenty-one. I think I gave you this one, Daniel. Says this that as sin has reigned unto death, before we were born again, what reigned in our lives? Sin did. I reigned. I want to do this. This makes me feel good. This will bring me carnal pleasure. Sin reigned in our lives. You know, one of the biggest lies the devil tells the world is that you're free to be your own person. When you choose to serve sin, you put the shackles on your hands and say i'll serve you but you say oh, no, "I no i'll do what i want sorry you're deceived what does the rest of that verse say even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by jesus christ our lord so sin used to rule and reign but now grace reigns so grace is not passive it's active it's an active force in our lives sometimes we we tend to water it down a little bit and think of it as when we when we were born again it's like we got a vaccination you know we came to the lord he gave us a shot of grace and we come into the church and but it's not just about being born again it's active in our lives i want to read a passage that i thought was fantastic and so well written i didn't want to rewrite it from Brother Daniel Seagrave's book, Themes from a Letter to Rome. He said this. He said to Paul, the grace of God certainly was the unmerited favor of God graciously extended to man, but it was more than that. The grace of God, by definition, a free gift, is a powerful force that works within the believer, giving him right desires and right abilities. And so grace is powerful it is powerful it gives us the desires. we'll get to that in a minute i'm gonna mess up my notes but it's not just something we had it's something that's in us and a part of how we serve god in our relationship now if you look at the life of the apostle paul you'll see that he credits the grace of god for anything that he was able to do anything that he was able to do that doesn't mean that he didn't give everything he had for the kingdom you would never accuse the Apostle Paul, when you read the book of Acts and the epistles, you would never accuse him of being lazy. He gave it all. He said, I'm willing to spend, I'm willing to be spent, do my best to be all things to all men that I might reach some. He gave everything he had. But in the midst of that, he declared that it was by the grace of God that he was able to do anything. Amen. It meant that he did invest himself, but He was trusting in God to do the work and in God to achieve his purpose. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9. And I'm mindful of time. Says, for I am the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the apostles that am not meet or not suitable to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. That's a pretty big statement. He was saying, my work ethic, I'll hold it up against any of the others in Jerusalem. But then he said, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And so he did labor in the kingdom, but he was acknowledging repeatedly it wasn't in his own strength. It wasn't in his own abilities, and also he wasn't doing it to achieve the favor of God. But he was doing it because of the favor of God. Amen. That same verse in a more modern translation says, well, verse 10 says, but whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I but God who was working through me by his grace. He knew very clearly that he had received favor that he didn't deserve from God. But he also knew that grace enabled him to be and to do what he was and what he did. Now, to an observer, he probably just appeared like a man working really hard in the kingdom. And that's okay. But Paul understood that anything that he did was enabled and empowered by the grace of God and the Spirit of God in him. God does want us to serve him. Let me say that. One of the things Jesus, one of the very few things Jesus spoke about praying for was laborers in the harvest. God wants us to serve him. This This is not a message that says we all just sit by the pool with a cold drink and a book. He does want us to serve him. He wants us to work for him. He wants us to live for him. But he doesn't want us to do it to earn credit or to be accepted. That's a wrong approach. But we are to surrender that approach. So, Lord, I'm not earning this to release the power of grace in our lives. Philippians 2 and 13, and I'm not too far off being done, says this. It says, for it is God, which worketh in you, both to will, and to do of his good pleasure i read that again for it is god which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure so both the desire or the will and the power to live righteously come from god not from us he gives us both the desire and the ability through his grace romans chapter 4 and verse 3 It says, What saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, let let me just break that language down a little bit. It basically says, What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed in God, and because he believed in God, he was considered righteous in the sight of the Lord. Then in verse 4, it says, but if we work believing that we're earning, he says, he that worketh, if he's looking for a reward, that if we live and do everything we do for God, we're looking for something that we've convinced ourselves we need to earn. And he said, that's not grace. He said, that's debt. It's twisted, but it's this weird, twisted thinking that says, if I will do this, then God owes me. Then he has to accept me if that was possible then we would have been doing that from the start but it's not possible we need the grace of god then verse five says but him when it says he it says but to him that worketh not let me make something clear these verses are not comparing one person who's working really hard every day and another person who's doing nothing it's talking about the approach to what you do it's not saying god wants us to just sit back and do nothing no no it's saying that if our mindset if the way I think is that if I, if I teach a Bible study, if I come to the house of God, if I read my Bible every day, if I witness, if I pray, if I clean the church, if I do all these things, then God owes me. Now, none of us would declare that, but subconsciously, that's under a lot of thinking. We get this mindset that if I do all these things, then he has to keep me in the family. Whereas the other approach is, I can't do enough to earn it he loves me. He's given me grace. That grace is going to work through me. And because of that, I'm going to do what he wants me to do. Now, to the spectator, they look the same. Two people serving God. But what's going on in the relationship is very, very different. Amen. It's about how we understand and approach what we do. One says that I must earn his love. I must earn his acceptance so i work 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 and the other says that i'm saved by grace i stand in grace i'm empowered by grace and i live and love and serve god by that grace again read another quote from brother seagrave's book he says this he says in the book of romans things done by one's own strength in attempt to gain favor are works things done by the enablement of the holy spirit are not the source of desire and ability, we just read from Philippians, the source of desire and ability to do things that glorify and please God is not one's own strength, it is the grace of God. And the reason that grace and works cannot be mixed is because, this is still Brother Seagraves. Graves, because they represent two radically different approaches to God. The works approach calls attention to one's own achievements in an attempt to gain favor with God. The grace approach appeals exclusively to the work of Christ on the cross for right standing with God. One, and this, when I read this, I really felt the Lord was in this. One is an approach of pride, the other, humility. Amen. Bless the Lord. Because when we have a works mindset, we don't think we're proud but we're depending upon our ability i am going to do this god must love me amen so try to bring this try to land this plane as they say how do we approach this how do we understand and activate this in our lives and in our thinking we go back to the beginning how did we first accept grace when you were born again what what had to take place For us to be born again, we had to repent of our sins. We had to acknowledge that we had no righteousness of our own. We had to acknowledge that we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't make ourselves whole. We had to surrender to Jesus and allow Him to be our King. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's about surrendering to Him and God, I can't do this. I can't save myself. I can't do enough good stuff to be righteous. But if I will allow your grace, it's about, it's really, it's kind of about us getting out of the way. Saying, Lord, I acknowledge there's nothing I can do that's righteous. But if I will lay that down and acknowledge my own weakness and allow your grace, then you can use me for your glory. Amen. Anything we do for the Lord goes better and gets better results when we come from that approach. Let me be transparent this morning. I've been preaching for do the maths it's nearly 30 years and you might think man it's taking you 30 years you need to keep working but i know the difference between preaching by the power of the grace and the spirit of god and doing it in my own strength i know that i can stand i'm not saying this to be arrogant in any way please i could stand up here and teach a lesson that's solid that's biblical that's clear and precise in my own strength Just by experience. But if I want to see what God wants to take place, when I say, get out of the way, Simon, and let the grace of God flow, that same message becomes anointed and powerful and can bring transformation. Same words, same notes, as long as it's the direction of God. That's the difference. Because one is my ability... And the other is getting my ability out of the way and letting him operate through me and achieve what he wants to achieve. And if you're involved in any form of ministry, don't forget that. Make it a regular practice to get your own carcass out of the way and let his grace flow through you. Galatians chapter 3. I think this might be our last passage. Thank you, Daniel. Doing a great job. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said this, This only would I learn of you received you the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith he said how did you, how'd you get the holy ghost how'd you get this whole born again new life thing going on did you achieve it by doing things and ticking off a list or did it come by faith obvious answer rhetorical question nobody nobody gets the holy ghost by earning so many points this is not a frequent flyer program you don't get so many points for living right and bing you get the holy ghost doesn't work like that. You come in faith, acknowledging that you can't do it, that he's got to be the king and surrender our lives to him. So that's what Paul said. But then he says in verse 3, in a somewhat not politically correct fashion, are you so foolish? That's King James English for Do you have rocks for brains? Are you thick? Do you think that somehow having begun this thing by faith in the Spirit, that you're going to finish it by going back to the old way of ticking off a list. It's not possible. It is not possible. Your ability to be righteous enough is at the same place as your ability to fill yourself with the Holy Ghost. It's impossible. So we've got to step back and say, Lord, I believe that you've made a way by grace, I'm saved, by grace, I stand, and by grace, I'm empowered. And God then gives us the ability to live a righteous life, but not in fear, in assurance. Again, the, the observable may seem the same. If I have two people up here, and we ask them how they're living, and they both say the same thing, and they are both living what we would consider a righteous life, one may be doing so in fear, and the other might be saying it's not me it's him that dwells in me he does he does the work his grace is sufficient amen bless the lord so when we acknowledge that we are totally unable to do anything in ourselves to earn his love and favor that's when he can empower us to do his will you see we sometimes half understand this idea see jesus prayed in the garden not my will but thine be done And we recognize that's a good prayer, that we should pray that prayer, not my will, but yours, Lord, be done in my life. But then when we pray that prayer, we get up from the place of prayer and attempt to fulfill his will in our own strength, subconsciously believing that somehow this makes us good enough or accepted. The first part is right. Yes, not my will, but thine be done. But when we pray that, we need to also be praying, not my will, but also be praying, not my strength. Because you can't do His will in your strength. If you're going to do His will, it's got to come by the power of grace and the Holy Ghost moving in us and through us. If we've trusted Him to save us with His grace, we have to trust Him to keep us and to give us the grace to live victoriously over sin. As Brother Seagrave said, when we attempt to gain God's favor through our own achievements and actions, it's actually an approach from the platform of pride. And we don't think like that because to us, pride is saying, I'm awesome. I'm great. There's nobody like me. You're blessed to know me. This world's lucky to have me, whatever you like. That's how we see pride. But pride also, in a very subtle way, is about self-dependence, is about I can take care of this. I am suitable on my own. I am competent by myself. I can keep what God wants me to keep, and he must accept me. That's pride. We would often look at it and say, well, actually, that's, you know, sometimes the world would say it's low, low self-esteem when we can't believe our identity in God, but it's actually a twisted form of pride. That's biblical. Amen. But when I understand his love, we read from 1 John 4, when I understand his love together with his grace, what happens? Fear. Is cast out. And then the way I live looks the same. You know, when, I, when you understand this, I'm hoping you'll come to church just like you always have. I'm hoping you'll serve the Lord like you always have. You'll give, you'll witness. You'll do all those things. There, there may not be a great visible, observable change, but what's going on in here is different. Because I'm not getting up in the morning thinking, oh, if I don't pray this morning, I'm going to lose my soul. Rather, I'm getting up in the morning saying, I want to pray today because he loves me and I love him and I need his grace today to give me the power and the strength. It looks the same, but it isn't. It isn't the same. We do not work and live righteously to earn his love, but because of his love. Cass, if I could have you on the piano, please. That's the view from the cross. That's what he sees. He sees us through grace and mercy and imputed righteousness. We see ourselves the way the devil wants us to see ourselves. That's why the apostle also wrote to the Romans. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. There's no condemnation. If you're still living with condemnation, this message is for you this morning. You feel fearful about your salvation. Now, please, let me be very clear. This is not an excuse for sin. This is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for sin. If you sin, you need to repent. You need to make it right with God. You need to restore that relationship. This is about every day when I get up, do I, do I approach Him from the platform of, if I don't do this, I'm going to lose it, or I love Him? Again, it looks the same, but it isn't. Let me say this. I don't want to get too pointed this morning, but sometimes the people that seem to have it the most together that look like, man, do they ever do anything wrong, are the ones with the most fractures because they're holding it together from a fear platform rather than a grace platform. I can't save myself. See, I I relate to this i relate to this i relate to wanting to do the best to wanting to tick the boxes to to complete the list to to not you know being found short of the mark i relate to that most of us do we're human beings but he basically said my yoke's easy (laughs) he said if you'll if you'll let my grace flow through you i will only empower you to live righteously through it but there's an assurance this anybody want fear cast out let's stand together this morning Let's sleep.